from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July 9th. Today, the ongoing battle over the 2020 census, a new look at the NRA's response to the Sandy Hook shooting, and a follow-up on the price of chocolate. Less than two weeks ago, the Supreme Court released a major decision. A decision about whether to put a citizenship question on the U.S. Census. And at the time, we had Supreme Court reporter Robert Barnes on the podcast to talk about this. So the bottom line was that they said the question can't be asked for now, but it's possible that the administration could come back and say, you know, here's a different reason that we want it, and that might be one that courts accept. It seemed like when the Supreme Court came down with that decision that this was a done deal. Aaron Blake writes about politics for The Post. It wasn't necessarily that the Supreme Court had said, there is no way on earth that you are allowed to do this. It just said the reason that you supplied was not the actual reason. And basically at that point, it didn't seem like the administration would even have time to come back with another reason or would be able to come back with a reason that would be valid in light of this very stunning rebuke that the Supreme Court issued, including by the Chief Justice John Roberts. Uh, So we all thought it was over, and the administration essentially said it was over, both publicly in comments by the Justice Department and the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, and also in court. They said in court a few days after this Supreme Court ruling that they were giving up, that they weren't going to pursue the case any further. And then what happened? We saw the president come out and throw a wrench in things, as he often does, with his thumbs. He came out with a tweet that said, we are not done with this. We are going to look at options for continuing to pursue this. And that put the onus on the Justice Department lawyers who had said they were going to give up in this case to go back to the court and say, hey, By the way, sorry about that. We're not actually done. And if you look at the court transcript of what these lawyers said to this judge, they were very apologetic. They said they didn't actually know what the president was talking about at that particular juncture in time. Which is a pretty shocking thing to say in court. It is a remarkable thing. One, it undermines your credibility with the judge who you're dealing with. No lawyer wants to deal with that situation. And also, as I mentioned, this is something that they had given up on officially in these court proceedings, and then they literally come back one day later and say, oh, actually, that's not the case anymore. We need to continue going with this. And what was the reason why they were in court, even though the Supreme Court had already decided on this? Well, of course, the Supreme Court decision was not striking down this question altogether. It was saying that they needed to come up with a better rationale or an actual rationale for this. So what that did effectively was it kicked it back down to the lower courts where the Justice Department can continue pursuing the case and ultimately potentially get it back to the Supreme Court and, in their eyes at least, hopefully get a different decision. And then since then, there's actually been a swapping out of the lawyers who are basically in charge of this case. What's that all about? Well, there are two potential explanations for that, I would argue. One is that the lawyers in the case had lost their credibility because they had told the judge they were done, and then they came back and said, oh, by the way, we're moving forward with this. Sorry about that. They also said something which I think is also important here, which is 
they said, we are going to provide a new, new rationale for this. We don't know what that rationale is yet. When you're trying to convince a judge that this is your actual rationale, this is the real reason why you're doing by something, if you don't know what that is, immediately that kind of undermines your case. The second explanation for the lawyer swap, which is not mutually exclusive of the other one, is that the lawyers who are working on this case before may not have wanted to be involved with this going forward. You see this occasionally but rarely with the Justice Department where various lawyers maybe are uncomfortable with the direction that things are heading and don't want to attach themselves to it personally. And I think in this case, that's plausible because these lawyers did see the rug kind of pulled out from under them by the president. Maybe they just decided that they didn't want to actually be part of that moving forward. And everybody involved decided it was time to get somebody who was willing to carry that torch forward involved in the case. The president has also threatened an executive order that would put this question on the census. How likely is that? And is that even allowed, considering that the Supreme Court said you have to come back to us if you want to do this? It's a very good question. I think one that plenty of people misunderstand about this. The president is allowed to try an executive order, but that executive order, like the initial attempt to get the question on the census, is going to be subject to judicial review. And also, if you look at what the Supreme Court decided, it was not that this question cannot appear in the census. It was just that the rationale offered was not right. So using an executive order would be going around a Supreme Court decision. I would not say that it was necessarily uh, disregarding or or disobeying a Supreme Court decision. Uh, whatever ultimately happens here is going to be litigated in the courts, whether it's because of a new rationale or because of an executive order. Uh, and it's going to be up to those courts to decide whether this is going to be allowed. Even an executive order could ultimately be struck down. From there, it would be a question of whether the administration would want to pursue another avenue or whether, you know, under a constitutional crisis situation, if they just totally disregarded that decision as well. And with this question of what could be another rationale for putting the citizenship question on the census, what could the answer to that be? What do you think that these lawyers may argue? Well, there's been plenty of speculation about this. The president, I would add, uh, came out in his public comments when he was asked about the citizenship question and why it was needed. Well, you need it for many reasons. Number one, you need it for Congress. You need it for Congress, for districting. You need it for appropriations. Where are the funds going? How many people are there? Are they citizens? Are they not citizens? You need it for many reasons. He said that it was needed for redistricting, which was... Uh, an argument actually that opponents of the question raised. They argued that this is essentially a power grab by Republicans who want to dissuade undocumented immigrants from responding to the questionnaire or that they want a new tool for drawing districts according to the citizen population and not the total population, which could help Republicans draw even more favorable maps. And by saying that, President Trump basically uh, made it appear that this is political, that this is basically a grab for political power. Yes, he confirmed everything that the opponents of, of this question were arguing, which is that this is ultimately about redistricting. There was a study that was done a number of years ago by the top Republican redistricting consultant who looked at how this would impact the state of Texas in particular. And he said definitively that this is something that would help Republicans and dilute the influence of Latinos in the state of Texas. Uh, so the idea that Republicans would be doing this for redistricting 
would be a naked political partisan power grab. And the idea that the president said this would not seem to be helpful. Now, here's the other side of this. What if the Justice Department comes forward and says, yeah, we were doing it for redistricting. We were doing it because we want to draw districts with just citizens rather than the total population. Uh, If you look at the Supreme Court decision, Justice John Roberts actually left a pretty wide door open for this question. The Justice Department could be very honest about that kind of thing, that it was actually for political reasons, for redistricting reasons, and that might actually pass muster with John Roberts, according to some legal experts I've spoken to. But couldn't they also just argue that it's important to have the number of citizens who live in America right now and and keep their their rationale very basic? That would be the the very simplest of motivations. That would be something that is very much in keeping with uh, something President Trump is obviously concerned about, which is undocumented immigrants. Uh, That was part of the rationale that they offered before, though. The rationale they offered before was we need this information in order to enforce the Voting Rights Act. We need to know how many undocumented immigrants there are, where they are, because there could be litigation resulting from this that we would need that data for. So if they were to come out and use a piece of the case that initially failed, I don't think that would necessarily be the best legal strategy. And, and you know, while it might seem like the simplest call, uh, I think there are certainly, certainly drawbacks towards proceeding that manner. What do you think is going to happen next on this? There are basically two options right now, and as of 2 o'clock on Tuesday, we don't know exactly which one they are going to choose. One is they can go back through the courts, they can offer a new rationale, and they can try to work their way up to the Supreme Court again. The other one is they can just do an executive order. The president can basically say this is what's going to happen, and then the opponents of this can fight that in a separate court case. I think people who are looking at this closely expect that the executive order is the more likely uh, because it avoids the time crunch and also it avoids the difficulty of having to come up with a new rationale that can somehow square with the one they provided before but actually pass muster with the courts. But if the president does do an executive order on this, wouldn't it get immediately struck down by the courts or at least held up in court? And also, isn't it a politically risky move to be so openly dismissive of what the Supreme Court just ruled on a couple weeks ago? I think if you if you want to predict what the courts are going to do, it's always a difficult exercise. Obviously, the fact that this was, was sent back to the lower courts by the Supreme Court before could play into another court case involving an executive order. Um, but it's also a separate action. The, the, the sense this uh, question was added through a process involving the Commerce Department and the Justice Department. What, you know, they didn't ask if the president has the authority just to declare this question beyond the census. So maybe the Supreme Court hears that case and decides, hey, you know what? The president does have this authority. He can go there, even though it seems there are many reasons why you would argue that he couldn't do that. As for the political consequences here, the president's base has been very willing to support him when it comes to uh, extending the bounds of executive authority. I think the most telling example of that was the national emergency to build the border wall. Many Republicans in Congress may have supported the border wall but did not think it constituted a national emergency or didn't want to give the president so much authority to basically appropriate money at his own will. Many of them ultimately came around and supported him in that because they are Republicans, they didn't want to look like they were rebuking him. I think if they came around to him on that, there is very little question that they would ultimately support him on something like this. 
Aaron Blake writes about politics for The Post. At 5.30 p.m. on Tuesday, a federal judge in New York ruled that the Justice Department will not be able to swap out most of its legal team. The judge called the department's request to withdraw those lawyers, quote, patently deficient. He went on to say that, quote, defendants provide no reasons, let alone satisfactory reasons, for the substitution of counsel. Good evening, everyone. The reaction of so many people today was, oh, no, not again. Another high school. Columbine High in Littleton, Colorado, this time on the edge of Denver. It has been a horror. Because of recent events, we've experienced unprecedented requests for our association to express itself on a variety of related and unrelated issues. Out of solemn respect, we have remained silent. Eleven days after the shooting at Columbine High School in Colorado in 1999, Wayne LaPierre, the chief executive of the National Rifle Association, made a speech at the group's annual meeting in Denver. First, we believe in absolutely gun-free, zero-tolerance, totally safe schools. That, That means no guns in America's schools, period. But in the decade or so after Columbine, the NRA shifted their stance. They started moving away from this position of no guns in America's schools. And then came 2012. John 911, what's the location of the emergency? Sandy Hook School. I think there's somebody shooting in here. Sandy Hook School. 20 first graders and six adults were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut. So after the shooting happened, this was a political crisis for an organization like the NRA. Reporters are demanding to know what their response is. Beth Reinhardt is an investigative reporter for The Post, and she reported a story about the NRA's response in the days after the Sandy Hook shooting. And leadership are trying to figure out what the correct response is. And Ackerman McQueen, their longtime PR agency, is weighing in and recommending a very combative response. But others in the NRA leadership thought, you know, we need to be a little more low-key. Politicians pass laws for gun-free school zones. But in the end, the NRA's posture was so combative. And in doing so, they tell every insane killer in America that schools are the safest place to inflict maximum mayhem with minimum risk. Wayne LaPierre held a press conference where he said, we've got a plan here. We're going to arm people and put them in schools. And that's how we're going to prevent the next new town. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. That was very jarring to many people who were grieving this terrible, terrible, unbearable loss, even to some of the NRA leadership who wondered, you know, whether that was really the right response early on. And so you've gone back and you've talked to some of those people from inside the NRA about how they felt seeing that message being put out right after this terrible shooting. Right. And, you know, there's no question that if you belong to the NRA, if you're a leader in the NRA, 
you feel very strongly in your Second Amendment rights. You do not believe in pretty much any form of gun control. However, there was discussion about the tone and the timing of the NRA's response. So you say that inside the NRA, after the organization made this big, splashy statement about the Newtown shootings, there were some people who were quietly questioning whether that was the right approach. But then there were also concerns about Wayne LaPierre and what he was doing at that time. So Wayne LaPierre, we have now learned years later because of this very ugly dispute between the NRA and one of its major contractors, a PR firm called Ackerman McQueen. There have been leaks of information about Wayne LaPierre's travel. One of the trips that we've learned about recently because of this ugly fight, which is also being litigated in the courts, was that he was in the Bahamas right around the time of Newtown. And so we wanted to get to the bottom of that to understand the timing of it, who had paid for that trip, and what was the basis for it. And our reporting is coming at a time when those questions are being asked about Wayne LaPierre and the leadership by a number of loyal members of the NRA. You're seeing signs of resistance here and there across the country. I mean, this is a group of 5 million members, so there are certainly a lot of people who think the organization is humming along. But there are a lot of people who are wondering if their leadership has been traveling and living large on the backs of their membership dues and donations from people committed to the cause. So this trip that Wayne LaPierre took, what do we know about when exactly it happened and what the nature was of of this trip? The NRA says that he went to the Bahamas for business purposes and donor outreach, but they've declined to give any details on that. And and this trip was paid for by the NRA? It was paid for by the NRA. It cost nearly $70,000 because he does not fly commercial. We know his wife also went, and she's also very active in the NRA. But anyway, this is, you know, a husband and wife, Christmas time, in a very desirable part of the country. Elizabeth, the, it's like a, it's a very shishi, beautiful, somewhat remote vacation island, right. essentially. That's where he was not long after Newtown. So you've done a lot of reporting over the last few months about the fact that there are a lot of tensions inside the leadership of the NRA, and that this seems to be one of those contentious moments. What is this power struggle all about? This fight really broke out into the open back in April. And at that time, Oliver North, who was the head of the board, was being outspoken about his criticism of LaPierre, the chief executive. LaPierre accused Oliver North of trying to extort him. That was the word he used. And Oliver North was forced out of his position as chairman of the board. So in the last few months, we've seen Three lawsuits are now churning between the NRA and Ackerman McQueen, its PR agency. They sued their former lobbyist and chief strategist, Chris Cox. They put him on administrative leave, then he resigned. He's out. One leader after another has fallen in the last couple months. And so far, Wayne LaPierre is still standing. But whether he has The tenacity and the support to continue remains to be seen because there is mounting resistance to him. 
So when we think about this kind of internal battle inside the NRA and this power struggle over the future of the NRA, it does kind of seem that those tensions had some of their roots in these weeks after Newtown. Absolutely. One person I talked to called it a turning point. This was a battle in part between Wayne LaPierre, Ackerman McQueen, Chris Cox. All of those people are now completely estranged and at odds. And that was, you know, seven years ago. And it definitely foreshadowed a bit of the fractures that we are seeing now. Beth Reinhardt is an investigative reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. Last month, we brought you the story of child laborers in the cocoa industry. Soon after, countries in West Africa announced that they would intervene in setting the price of cocoa. They want to establish a minimum price point that chocolate companies have to pay. Farmers in places like Ghana and Ivory Coast have struggled to make a living because of price fluctuations in the cocoa market. My name is Peter Wariski. I'm a reporter on the financial desk at The Post. Earlier this year, Peter went to the Ivory Coast to report on the chocolate company's use of child labor. He spoke with some of the impoverished farmers there who said that on 85 cents a day, they're left with limited options. We are here with Mathieu Cassé. He's a farmer, and we're going to ask him some questions as the guys work away cutting for a cocoa farm. There are millions of farmers uh, in Cote d'Ivoire, in Ghana, who farm cocoa, and many of them live in poverty. I talked to a couple dozen farmers while I was there, and almost uh, to a person, they complained about the price of cocoa. They all said, years ago, you could make a living at this. That's why I got into it. And now the price of cocoa has come down, and they're struggling, and they're hurting. One of the big problems for farmers has been fluctuations in cocoa prices. And in recent years, they've really come down uh, and hurt farmers across West Africa. What happened last month is the companies were called to West Africa by the governments of Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana, who told them, look, you're not paying enough for cocoa. Cocoa prices have come way down. The government said to the chocolate companies, including the biggest that we know of, Hershey, Nestle, Mars, said, look, you guys need to pay more for your cocoa. And they raised the price. They said they would raise the floor price by 10%. The companies have paid more for cocoa in the past, so they can pay more. They're capable of paying more. You could say, look, they can just go get their cocoa elsewhere, and that's Somewhat true, but more than 60% of the world's cocoa already comes from Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. So it's not going to be easy for them to move out if they decide to, to do that. They seem to have a lot of questions about how this would work. One of their key concerns, they say, is how much of the price that will be collected by the government for cocoa will actually end up with the cocoa farmers. And it's not clear how much of that price will, will get passed on. 
Peter Wariski investigates financial and economic issues for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. If you need to catch up on past episodes, head to postreports.com. That's where you can find our episode archive and links to the stories from our recent shows. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.